0: Okay. Hello, everyone, this is Jeffrey Geisner for the Obligations of Memory podcast for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and YouTube video. I'm here with Elvira Grossinger, uh, and Elvira has been, was born in 1947 in Poland and as a child of Holocaust survivors. She grew up in Israel, received her B.A. from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in English and in French literatures and Jewish history, and the history of the arts. Since 1967, Alvaya has been living in Germany and she's translated translator's diploma from the University, university of Heidelberg, studied in, with German literature and Jewish studies in Frankfurt on the main, and she has her doctorate in general and comparative literature from the free, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, university in um, Delhi. Berlin. All right, and um, she's also the author of nine books, mainly on Jewish culture and literature, and over two hundred scholarly articles and reviews. Elvira is married. To- <laughs> Elvira, <laughs> Elvira uh, is married to Professor Emeritus of Religious and Jewish Studies, Karl Grossinger. He's affiliated professor of the University of Haifa. They have one married daughter who's a dermatologist and two grandchildren. And so I, I very am pleased to welcome you to the Obligations of Memory podcast, Elvira. And um, I'm going to just start right in um, by asking you to tell a little bit about your parents, what you know of your parents' pre-war days there their families, their customs, religious aspects of their lives. And then we'll walk a little bit through their uh, Holocaust experience, but we'll not spend that much time there. Go ahead. Okay. Yep.
1: But uh, I still see this uh, just a minute. It's it's something. Do you see me? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, Well, my... uh, mother uh, was uh, from Siedlze. This is 80 kilometers east of Warsaw. It was a big Jewish community of 37 until 39 percent of the population there. My grandfather, who came from a family of Kotzke rebel, but was uh, wasn't uh, Hasid anymore. He was colonized and modernized, had a printing house. It was um, called Artisticna, the artistic printing house and was printing uh, books and um, all kinds of things. Hello? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. And um, he is uh, mentioned in the otherwise very un-Jewish today, but there are two books about personalities in Sheditze and they mentioned my grandfather there twice as one of the famous printers. His posters um, are in the National Library of Poland because they were so well printed and are interesting. My grandfather, was um, a friend of the later um, marshal of Poland, Józef Piłsudski. Maybe you know him, I don't know. Anyway, he was anti-Russian at the beginning of the 20th century. Poland was still um, under Russian uh, rule and Austrian and so on, divided. And, um, my grandfather printed illegal pamphlets against Russia, against the Tsar for Pisutsky. Pisutsky was then a rebel, and um, uh, it was very dangerous because who was caught went to Siberia. And so uh, it was of course, a dangerous task, and Biosutski and my grandfather remained friends all the years. My mother was born in 1912, and she was educated at home. It was Jewish girl. This was not a, there was no school for Jewish girls at that time in that place. But my grandfather wanted her to attend a Polish high school, gymnasium. There was a Catholic elite sh- school. Uh, which did not accept Jewish girls. It was for girls only, but no Jewish girls were accepted. But my grandfather didn't give up and called the marshal of Poland and told him the problem. And the marshal intervened, and my mother was able to attend the high school for Polish, not Jewish girls. She finished this high school, graduated, and started studying Uh, dental medicine in Warsaw, this was not far away. And this is very important because it saved her life during the war. She she finished her studies just before the war uh, broke out and she was treating Germans and um, everybody uh, under the false name of Lipska Her name was really Lichtenpacht. But she was uh, Lipska, Maria. Had a little blonde uh, hair. And she didn't look Jewish, that Jewish anymore. So she could survive. And she um, married my father, whom she met uh, during her, her studies. My father was studying medicine in Warsaw as well and they got married after the beginning of the war and my father had to hide because he was very dark Um, after him. I was after him (laughs) and uh, he was circumcised and uh, it was just too dangerous for him to be outside so he had to hide the whole time. And my mother was working in different places where they always changed the place, the hiding place they were in. And uh, so she practically dragged him over the years.
0: Uh, Where was he he hiding, Elvira?
1: He was hiding in different uh, houses of people who were helpful. Mm -hmm. They had had the room, an apartment. My mother is a doctor. And uh, he was just hiding there, and the was oh, he
0: being helped by non-Jews, or was he being hidden
1: by, by Poles, by Germans? Volksdeutsche. These were the. There was a woman whose um, Polish husband. She was a German national, and um, they were supposed to go back to the Reich. Hitler said all the Germans should leave Poland and go home to Germany. She didn't want to because she was married to a Polish professor. And the first thing the Germans did when they came into a city, they caught the intelligentsia and shot them. So her husband was one of the executed at the beginning and she hated the Germans. So she hid my parents for a while. And uh, but her brother, it was one of the few stories I heard from a friend of my mother because my parents never talked about it. Uh, Her brother was in the SS and he was helping his sister without knowing that the people who lived in her place were Jewish. My father never showed up, but uh, my mother was there and um, another Jewish woman who was pregnant was there, and so all of them had happy evenings with the SS, drinking, laughing. And my mother, she never laughed again, uh, naturally. It was always some kind of acting, mm. you know. It was, it was natural laughter. I, I didn't, didn't understand it at the beginning, but then I understood it. She was always playing a role. And this, uh, this uh, German brother, this Esmond, he brought over his uh, comrades. They were all drunk and uh, they were looking for the Jews in the closet. It was fun. They were just making fun and they said, they're going to look for Jews hiding. It was not funny, but uh, of course everybody laughed. And... The problem was the pregnant friend of my mother's and of the the other lady, she wanted to hide. She had no nerves for these evenings. And she said, I'm going to hide myself in the closet. And my mother and the other lady said, no, never hide. You have to stay there and play a role. And the first thing they did, open a closet and she wasn't there. So this was one of the, of the times when their la- life was saved and uh, by chance. And um, I think um, that's why I heard about it. So I don't know very little about their, their stages during the war, but my parents were for a short time in the ghetto in Warsaw. But at the beginning, you could go out to work. So my mother was working as a doctor outside, and she she could provide false papers for my father and herself. And then slowly she bought others. And with these papers, they fled from the ghetto and hid outside. But the rest of the family, this was my... Grandmother, um, my father's mother, my father's brother, older brother who was a doctor, his young wife, they were freshly married, and a baby who was born, a boy, shortly before the outbreak of the war. And on the other side were my grandparents, my mother's parents, and her older brother who was um, a lawyer. And my parents tried, they smuggled the false documents into the ghetto to get them out, but no one was there anymore, it was too late. And they don't know how they died, whether they were deported or no one knows. I don't even know the name of my my cousin, the only cousin I had. The baby, I don't know what was his name. My parents never mentioned them again.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, so So, let's
0: let's take it a little further. So um, how did they, the war is over in 1945. Right. Right. Before
1: 1944, the end, uh, when the Russian uh, Soviet army was moving to the west, they joined um, the Polish army, which was... so to speak, adopted, included into the Soviet army. And my parents were there in the um, medical corps. And they-
0: For the the Russians?
1: No, Poles. This was the Polish army. Uh, You know, the the Poles joined them because they, um, this was the only possibility to, I don't know, to fight the Germans because the Polish army, as it was be- at the beginning of the war, was decimated. There was mm-hmm. nothing there. So there, it's a Polish division called Polish army in the Soviet army. And they, uh, my parents came almost to Berlin as doctors. And um, then the war, there was the, uh, the war was at the end. And they, um, returned to Poland to look for the family they hoped to find, the relatives. Otherwise, they wouldn't have returned, but they hoped that there's someone left. And they looked looked for them via Red Cross and so on, but didn't find anybody. And then they were forced, my parents, to, um, it was... Lower Silesia, Lower Silesia was German, uh, but uh, the Germans were uh, thrown out from there by the Polish authorities at the Treaty of Peace. And um, the Germans had to leave and the Poles had to leave from uh, East Poland, which, which is now Ukraine, Lemberg and all this, Galicia. They were deported to Lower Silesia, and my parents, together with other Jews who survived, many of them who came with the army from the West, this was behind the border, they um, were, uh, so to speak, forced to organize the medical system in Lower Silesia. It was um, not destroyed, the city where I was born. It is Hirschberg in the mountains, in Riesengebirge, it is called. It was a very nice place and there were houses and so on. And uh, my parents organized this um, medical service and then they wanted to leave Poland because they saw there's nothing there and... It was not the place to stay, but um, the Poles didn't let them out anymore. And, you know, there were pogroms, kelsey, maybe you know it, and so on. The atmosphere was not good, but they didn't manage to leave anymore.
0: And, and this so is, and this is 1947, right?
1: 1946, 47, and then I was born. And my parents uh, worked there in the hospitals or, um, well, my mother was a dentist. My father finished his studies and was a dermatologist. He didn't finish his studies before the war. He was five years younger than my mother. And so uh, they were always writing letters to the government to let them go because um, they had cousins who survived, by uh, the war in Russia or before the war when they emigrated to France, to Australia, to the US, and they wanted to join them in Israel, but they were not allowed to go. But then in 1956 and 57 was an anti-semitic campaign in Poland, Gomulka, maybe you know it, Uh, and they were allowed to leave and so we emigrated the end of December 1957 to Israel.
0: So you were 10 then years old.
1: I was 10 years old, and this is where I grew up. And um, my parents got work, found work after a while, both of them in Beersheba. Uh, in the medical work. Desert. And I was, which um, I'm afraid, um it's not, you don't hear it by my language, but I don't use English anymore for many, many years. I write, but you I can't don't tell.
0: You can't tell, Elvira, you're doing great.
1: And um, I was in an English boarding school in Jaffa, Jaffa. And I hated it there. It was a Christian a Church of Scotland school. And I learned day and night and finished, graduated from the high school two years ahead of time, just to get out. And then I went to the university in Jerusalem Uh, before I went to the army. You had to go to the army in Israel when you're 18, but I was just 17, turned 17. And so I could start the studies. And then three years later, I had my BA and I was supposed to go to the army. But I had met my husband in my last year at the university. He studied in Jerusalem and we didn't want to part. And so I came to Germany because his scholarship ended there and he had to return. And that's why I'm here since November 9th, 1967, which is the the day of the Kristallnacht, you know, Kristallnacht, and the Mm -hmm. Nazis destroyed the synagogues and Jewish shops and so on. And when I came here on that date, I swore to myself that I will never stop fighting against anti-Semitism and never stop fighting Anti-Israelis, and this is going on. The fight is still today.
0: I I understand. So let me let me take you a little bit backwards, and I'm yeah. going to ask you some questions about growing up with your survivor parents. Now yeah. you also, you you just told um, us that you have they never spoke to you about their experiences. That Mary's my parents were both survivors, also mom from Auschwitz. And my father from uh, at sixteen, he escaped Nazi Germany in Berlin, so we have some uh, we have some underlying threads here. Uh, he well, went where did come from? he was from uh, he was born in Stuttgart yeah nineteen twenty one and he escaped uh, on the last uh kinder transport at age fifteen out of Berlin and he traveled with a hundred other teenagers from uh, Berlin to Italy and on a ship Galilee to uh, Port Haifa, and then to um, he lived on kibbutz Yagur uh, uh, ah, for, for that period of time. So, and my parents actually, my mom was, uh, was liberated from Auschwitz, went back to Kosice, Czechoslovakia, and then eventually came to Israel as well. But she got denied uh, 2000, she was on a boat with 2000 other uh, immigrants. And they were denied access by the British in 1947. And she, was, she then had to spend a year in Cyprus. Yeah. Um, and so she eventually came to Tel Aviv because she had a cousin in Tel Aviv. But coming back mm-hmm. to your, uh, your side, your parents didn't speak like my parents never spoke. So growing up in their home, what was it like for you? And you said you were your only child, right? Yeah. Okay. So what was it like for you growing up in a survivor's home?
1: I always uh, felt different. First of all, I was the darkest child in the whole city. And um, I didn't know that I'm Jewish, but I knew I'm, I'm different. And my parents, they had false papers, you know, false documents. And when I was asked in school, what was my mother's maiden name, for instance? So I asked my mother, what was your maiden name? What did she tell me? Lipska. You know, all these lies that were used to during six years or five years, yeah, six years, she just continued to use. I didn't know my parents, grandparents' names, real names. I didn't know my mother's history. I didn't know anything. And whenever I ask, why don't I have a brother or a sister like everybody else, there was silence. I was too little to understand. Why don't I have a grandmother or a grandfather like everybody has? No uncles, no aunts. They were just—you could see that they were, they became like a stone. You know, they—they they were so do tense. Do you so think?
0: I... Do you think their um, trauma that they faced was the reason why they? didn't uh, acknowledge, that even in Israel, that they were Jewish? Uh, when they went
1: to Israel, of course, this changed. Mm-hmm. But in Poland, they never told me, you know how I found out that I'm Jewish? I went to my best friend, who was a Catholic, and her mother was an anti-Semite, a bad woman. Her father was very nice. I don't know if he's not, he was not Jewish, a little bit, at least. But he was very kind to me, but her mother hated me, and then I didn't know that we' were going to we were going to israel and this woman told me I got a winter jacket from my aunt from the United States in a parcel, and I was so proud of it and i went uh, I wore this jacket, and I went to my friend. And her mother looks at it and says, there where you are going to, you won't need it. I said, well, where I'm going to? She said, you ask your parents. The whole city knew it because my parents were well, very well known. They were not communists, but they were personalities. And um, they didn't tell me. They, they prepared the immigration without telling me. You know, I just didn't talk to my parents much. They were working and then I talked to my dog. I had a dog. <laughs> and the dog uh, was sort of my brother but uh, he didn't tell me either that um <laughs> going to Israel. <laughs> so, um, and I had to leave him in Poland. This was very sad for me. It was like a little bit of death, you know. Yeah. So, um. I asked my parents when I came home, listen, what is what is it all about? I don't understand. And then they told me, and they showed me a catalog from uh, Sochnut, from Jewish Agency, where children are eating oranges and dancing in the sun and happy, you know, horror. And I, I was really happy. I said, oh, great. That's where we're going to. And the whole problem was uh, somehow not there anymore. I don't know why my parents kept secrets from me all the time. When we went to Israel, we had no apartment. We were in a tzrif, in a barrack, you know, so, so, such a, a hut on the seaside, on the shore of um, um, Naharia. There was no light. No no electricity, no water. But we had, each one of us got one kilogram, well, two pounds of oranges as a welcome gift. Mm -hmm. So we were walking on the beach and eating oranges all day. And then my parents decided to go to Tel Aviv where our family was and um, their cousins. And so we moved from the Tzrih to a hotel which is still there down at the Allenby. It's called Hotel Monopole.
0: It's opposite. the. So, so were you um, so you're now 10 years old. You're now, yeah. in, you're now in Israel. Uh, clearly and, there's uh, it sounds like there's a bit of a distance between you and your parents. Is that right?
1: Right. I no. always thought I was a gypsy child found on the
0: street. Oh, wow. So, and were they, as they went to Tel Aviv, did they get back into their medical profession in Israel? Yeah, uh, not in Tel
1: Aviv, but in, in Beersheba. Okay. They worked, they came, then there were fifty over 50,000 Olim chadashim with the uh, immigrants with academic uh, professions. It was very difficult in 1957. It was just nine years after the independence of Israel uh, the situation was uh, difficult uh, and uh, there was no work there where you wanted to, no work in Tel Aviv. So they went to Be And um, Be was then a small place with eucalyptus trees and a tipat halav, which you know my, maybe you, what it is. It is a um, meeting point for mothers, which was founded by the Mm-hmm. So this was uh, a new uh, new blocks which were built for the new um, comers, and there were many children of the immigrants. So I could play with them. And um, so then... this brings,
0: this brings up another question for me. So you are you are now in Besheva, and you are among other Holocaust survivors' children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were, some of those parents were must have been talking to those children about yeah. their experiences in the in the Holocaust did you hear from those children about potential I, no no not a word and not from the parents
1: we had neighbors from Holland we had neighbors from Hungary from Romania from Poland no never our direct neighbors and friends uh, it was a couple married couple he was also a medical doctor and his wife was a ukrainian who uh, converted to judaism at some point i did not in poland but i guess in israel and they um they had two sons and a daughter and the sons were um were not uh, circumcised but uh he was also um, a survivor, but he survived in the Soviet Union, so he didn't have the um, the traumatic things my parents went through. He was somewhere in Caucasus or whatever. So, um, and his wife wasn't Jewish, so this was wasn't a topic either. I don't know. No, so, we did topic. you have
0: any so. For instance, my parents who never spoke, never had any outward um, expressions that I could see something was wrong. Did your parents have any traumas or headaches or nightmares or anything that would that would appear to you that there was something off with your parents and their experiences of of the war? And
1: My mother was very sick when she came when when the war was over, and she had to go to places for cure, you know, had liver problems and so on. So she was often missing at home. And I was brought up by a Polish um, nanny. So um, at that time, I knew that my parents were different from all other parents I knew for my friends' parents and neighbors. They were all Polish, Catholics, and they sent their children to the first communion. And um, they asked me, when will you be there? When will you get the communion? And I said, next year. Hmm. And I asked my parents, what can we do? They said, next year, and the next year, this was the latest time, thank God we went to Israel. Yeah, I mean, I talked to my parents. My mother was drawing with me, and they were helpful, and my, my father played the piano every day. He was a perfect pianist, never had learned the, the, to play, but he could by hearing. And I played with him, and he liked it when we sat together at the piano and were playing four hands. And I had just... This was one of the topics we had in common, and um,
0: so let me stop. They... Let me stop you there, Elvira. I want to let everyone know that we've just completed our first uh, episode of the uh, Obligations of Memory podcast network for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. I'm speaking with Dr. Elvira Grossinger from Berlin, uh, and we're doing this through a great Zoom connection. Uh, we're going to come right back and continue our discussion with. Uh, doctor, and um, see you on the other side. What What do you want to hear? Welcome I... back, everyone. I'm Jeffrey Geissner from the Obligations of Memory podcast network for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. I'm with Dr. Elvira Rosinger, who's a well-established um, educator and published, and she's published over. How many books? Not six, nine books, did you say? Six books? Nine so books. Uh, Right, and we we're talking about um, Elvira's opportunities of going from Poland uh, as a child of age 10 to Israel, where she then grew up from 10 and went to the university. So let's talk about your um, university days. And yeah. you decided to leave, were you still living at home, or were you uh, living outside of the home? No,
1: my home was in Beersheba, and um, I studied in Jerusalem, and it was before the Six-Day War, and it was a long travel of over two hours um, by bus every week, or almost every week I went home for the weekend.
0: So when you went and decided to go to uh, the university, that was the first time you were leaving home. And what was it like for you to leave home and for your parents to leave home?
1: No, I was in the all the years in the boarding school.
0: Ah, that's right.
1: the age of 11 to 16. And uh, so I was used to not living at home. Okay. But my father... Um, got sick at the time, he, when he was 42, just shortly after we arrived, he got a bladder cancer and he died at the age of
0: 49.
1: Yeah. Sorry. So I came home every day and we talked and um, it was a time when we got closer to each other, but there was no, no way to get behind their history in the, in the war time, never. There was a wall which I could not
0: translate. How, how did your mother deal with his, the loss of your, of your father?
1: Very hard. He was the love of her life. He was very good looking. He was always in the middle of the society where they lived. When my parents lived, was a holiday resort in the mountains for Polish artists and writers uh, who spent uh, the holidays there and they met in my in my parents house they had we had a house and we had sort of a you know salon my parents uh, had them all and they they took pictures with me and they loved me very much they They gave me their books, and they read me their stories, and they painted little things for me. So I was a little princess when we had guests. I do not know what they talked about because uh, I was a child who had to go out when the grown-ups were there.
0: So how many languages do you speak? Six. Which are?
1: Polish, Hebrew, well, English, you hear me, French, Yiddish, and German.
0: Very nice. So I can't compete with you. The only language I know is English, so sorry. But let me (laughs) ask you, um, so what was it like to go to the university? Obviously, to be an intellectual, you're studying, uh, and you're meeting other people who, again, are in Israel, who have the Holocaust in their background, are you talking about the Holocaust when you were studying with your friends uh, at the University of Jerusalem? Not really, um,
1: because um, we were young people. We wanted to learn, and it was a very, very hard learning. We had I had 35 hours of courses every week, and we wrote tests all the time and uh, papers and so on. We had no time to deal with the past. We were happy about the present. We were going to theater and we, you know, no, we had, uh, we were an international group. They were American students and my friends, uh, we lived uh, together. We studied everything from the first day we met at the university, four girls, um, one, and um, her mother was and her father were from uh, Lithu- Lithuania and her mother was a nurse. And they were also with the Red Army in Berlin. They had, um, they didn't um, survive a camp or ghetto or something. They were also a little bit younger than my parents and um, my friend was still my friend. We kept on for now, I came here 67, 55 years. We're meeting every time I'm in Israel and she's been here and so on. Her parents also came to Israel just after the war in 45. Aliyah Bet, the illegal Aliyah. And uh, were sent by the British to Italy. That's where my... (laughs) where my friend was born. So we always were joking, you know, my Italian friend. Uh, This is the only thing we talked about the war. This was the why her parents came to Israel at the time. And another one came um, together with me from Romania. She um, was at Hadassim at the Widzo's high school and uh, her father was also a doctor and um, he also died young when she was uh, with me in in the same situation and uh, but we don't uh, have a contact anymore uh, she became a teacher my other friend the italian became a social worker and um, i became um, literary scholar so we had three different careers and the fourth girl was from the same little town Kiryat Ha'im, near Haifa and uh, as my friend and uh, she was born in Israel already so her parents were from before the war in in Palestine and they had um no reason to talk about the, the traumas. Right. So, so
0: we're for everyone, talk- for everyone listening. We're in somewhere around 1965, 1966. Is that correct? Yeah, in 64 uh, to 67. Right. Was Can you when- give us a little bit of a landscape what Israel is like during this time? And we also you mentioned that we lead, you're leading up to the 1967 war. So what was yeah. the what was the environment to live in Israel like during this time? Um, um, it was very
1: zionistic. You know, we were dancing every year at the Yom hatz at the Independence Day, on the streets, and we were singing the the, the songs. And uh, it was um, it was a home, and um, it was a problematic home because uh, the Arabs have always committed terror acts. There were always some tensions of political uh, kind on the borders. And um, in 1967, um, when the war was nearing, um, this was the first time I got into panic. My father was dead already. Um, That it's going to be a show out if the arabs come they will murder us so i was facing death which i um i kept in my mind which my parents went through and survived they also survived by the way they were um this is something i want to tell you because that's why i'm i'm able to live in germany you know as a child of survivors because my parents had met some Germans who were very helpful and very okay. They were um, deported to the Pol- to the Gestapo by a Polish Schmaltzownik. Schmaltzownik, you probably know, is, uh, were those who caught Jews or Jewish-looking people on the street. And if you didn't pay, they handed you in to the Gestapo. And this is what happened to my parents when they were changing their hiding places. And this man went to the Gestapo and said, "Does that's, that's Jews, they spoke Yiddish. And my father was never spoke Yiddish, he could not speak Yiddish. My father is a baron, an Austrian baron, a nobility, which um, spoke French at home and German on the street and not Yiddish. And so they would never speak Yiddish between them, you know, on the street in Poland, fearing um, danger, never. And interestingly enough, my birth name is Weisberg. Baron von Weisbeck, I'm a baroness, if (laughs) Austria would have it. (laughs) But it it was abolished in 1918. And the Gestapo man was very cultivated and had the same name. And they talked to my parents and they were talking about literature and music and so on. And he arrested the man who reported reported them because they said, these people are never Jews. Maybe he knew. He didn't want to to do anything. They understood each other. And this is one of the episodes incidents which uh, my parents told me about.
0: Well, and it's a fabulous. It's a fa- <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that because it brings um reality to a touching point we so hate and think about germans always in the most negative light so it's it is nice to hear a story that you've just shared so i want to take you a little bit forward you talked about um you were worried about the show it's very interesting my parents who got married in 1950 in tel aviv um but they decided to leave um, Israel because they didn't want to, my father was fought in the war of 1948 and he didn't. they didn't want to bring us or bring their children up in the constant threat mm-hmm. of war. So they were sponsored to come to the United States, Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is where I was born. My sister they came in 1954, pregnant mm-hmm. with my my sister and what my even though my parents didn't speak, about the war, but they did mention that the two reasons they came to the United States was that my mother was very successful. She had a beauty salon in Tel Aviv. My father mm-hmm. was also successful, um, but it, they were concerned like every year or every, I don't know what the frequency was, but their their shekels were constantly devalued during that. Period. And so they were working and winding up not being able to have what they thought they had in the bank. And the other the second reason, which was I'm not sure which was the primary reason, was they're worried about bringing their children up in, a, in an atmosphere of war all the time. So they left Israel um, in 1954. Mm-hmm. And I was born in 1958. So I'm a, quite a bit, I'm a little bit younger than you are. But um, younger, you're 11 years younger than I am. <laughs> so you you you're basically now in the university and tell me how you met your husband
1: met my husband in the Mensa, in the dining Mensa. He was, he had striking blue eyes. He was smoking a pipe. And I was in Germany visiting my my parents, friends who were survivors of Auschwitz, and the daughter who was my friend, the only Jewish girl I knew, the other one in my home city. And they were always friends, we were friends and they immigrated year before we did to israel and then when uh, the reparations came you know from the germans they left israel and went to germany and got a lot of money for surviving auschwitz and so on and their daughter and i um, were once on a tra- on a streetcar and i I was so happy to be in a streetcar. I knew it from Poland. There was no streetcar in Israel and this was my gift for my graduation. I was sixteen, and I was on that on that uh, streetcar and talked English to my girlfriend because we didn't want to speak polish and um the, the I didn't know that the streetcar can suddenly stop i re, i forgot it already and so i f- sort of fell over a woman who was holding a uh, flowers in her hand and the flowers f- fell down on the floor and i picked them up and i said excuse me and she started screaming those foreigners really hateful and um you know I I said, excuse me, never think I, I did nothing wrong. So I left Germany after one month. It was summer holiday. And I said, never again. And then I saw this man. And, um, well, he was a German. And the never again changed into, yes, again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what year are you now? I'm now in Berlin. But what year? Um, what do you mean? What, when did you meet him?
1: Met him in 67, at the beginning of 67, our last, his last year and my last year. But when he finished, he had to go home and I would go to the army. So we would have to part for at least two years which was and you were not, already
0: you are when did you get married
1: i came on 9th of november to germany with the permission for leave before i go to the army of 3 months in order to get married i was supposed to return by january 9th if i would not get married so we got married on the 2nd of january and i Skip the army, right. and you the, and then you never went
0: back to Israel. Or you went back to Israel.
1: Well, we were. My mother was in Israel. I was going. We were going every year.
0: Okay. And we were, so, talk to me about it. the first time you brought your husband to visit your mother. What was her as a uh, as a survivor? I, she was meeting someone who was German. I yeah. would. But I'm interested to know that dynamic.
1: Yeah, my mother fell in love with my husband. He was such a nice boy and such a gentleman. And she cooked for him and she baked for him. And well, there was no problem. The only problem he had is that I would leave her alone, a widow, and go to, to, to Germany to marry. She was very unhappy
0: about that. Hmm.
1: Not because it was Germany, but it was
0: far away. And what was it like going, you know, he's obviously, is he Jewish or not? I'm not sure. He's not Jewish. So when you visited his family, what was it like to visit his family?
1: Yeah, I wasn't the first Jew in the family because um, his cousin married, an American Jew who was in the army, his older cousin, much older. And uh, this American Jew was an officer of the American army. It was in Stuttgart. My husband also comes from Stuttgart. And um, he fell in love with this. She was very pretty, the woman, and she went to the United States and married him. So there was already a Jewish member of the family in the family. And his parents were very nice, very direct, no problem. No one, I never felt anything. They were nice to me and his father liked me very much. He always talked to me. He was very friendly and his mother talked anyway to everybody. (laughs) So I, um, there was no problem. And his sister was there and he had two brothers in the United States. And they they were also no problemat, not, there were no problems. So I didn't feel strange in this family.
0: Okay, well, that's terrific. So you uh, are now married, you're living in Berlin. And what's interesting yeah. is he is a professor, and I, under- I want to kind of understand the dynamic. He's a, he's a Jewish studies professor. Yeah, because and he's- So spent- tell me a little bit about how he, how he became a Jewish professor.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's um he was studying theology, and he he learned Hebrew, and this was a time when in 1966, when uh, some young Germans um, went to Israel to so to speak, you know, to because they felt guilty of what happened. And they wanted to to learn to live there, how to live there among Jews and to learn to know Jews and Jewish culture and so on. And he got a scholarship for one year and he went to Jerusalem. And um, he found it um, extremely interesting. He traveled all over and studied archaeology with Igal Yadin and... Great, right. And um, he was very gifted because he learned Hebrew very quickly, the spoken Hebrew, and he studied in Hebrew it's not it wasn't a school for foreign students. it was the regular curriculum he he went through. So um he came in the summer, and we met in March at the beginning of March. And um, Israel became his um, home. He hoped, he asked uh, for the prolongation of his scholarship, but they didn't give it. They, uh, they didn't want Germans to stay too long in Israel because some of them, not only he, brought Jewish women back with them. And I I think the... Um, the universities here didn't like it, to see that their students are going astray. Especially as he, he didn't like the theology, but uh, he studied it for some years and uh, wanted to finish it. So um, the church didn't want a minister, which they thought he would become. Marry to live in intermarriage. They wanted them to marry Protestant women. But um, he wasn't obedient. And when he made his diploma, he started to study um, Semitic languages and more Jewish studies, which were then established, new established, uh, newly established in Germany. And he made a career in this. So, and he's he has this enormous output, an enormous
0: um, amount of books
1: and articles. And um,
0: so you're very, both, so you're both it, Jewish scholars. You get married. What's your what's your dinner conversation like? A conversation.
1: You're not. You're indiscreet. <laughs> Yeah. Now we were not talking about the Shoah. We were talking about modern Germany, which was, uh, for me, as as you heard, not the p- most pleasant place because I was afraid of um, unsympathetic people with whom I would have to deal with. And um, but then he was in the in Israel in the Six Day War as well. And he was uh, digging the trenches and um, was with the Haggah. This is the um, security thing in Haifa, where he had some friends. And I was in 'er Beersheba in the hospital. um, And um, when we met after the war, we didn't know we would survive. And Israel would survive. It was... uh, clear to us that we're going to stay together and i would go to germany because he couldn't we couldn't marry in israel it was an intermarriage in our know, religious only a chupa. and i didn't want him to um, convert because uh, he would never
0: want me to convert so it's how long a, have you how long have you been, how long have you been married Pardon? How long have you been married? Now, yeah.
1: uh, I'll be married in January for fifty-five years.
0: Mazel tov. That's terrific. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to sort of lead you now to, um, what was it like to go back and live in Germany? I have my own set of experiences my, when I graduated from the university here. Uh, uh-huh. My parents gave me a trip. Uh, uh, a summer trip, three months, uh, all expenses paid to go visit Europe. And I have a cousin, first cousin from my mother's side, whose mother was a survivor from Auschwitz, mm. from, from Kosice, Czechoslovakia. He escaped, mm. the Russians came in 67, and he moved to 67, um, and then he moved to uh, Aachen, Germany. Oh, Right he, on fled, the, fled. He, fled, he fled he escaped and he moved to aachen because it was very close to the belgian border so he he also was traumatized and he he wanted to be one step or one foot in both places so he if he needed to he could uh, leave so what uh-huh. was it like as a jewish woman coming from israel and you came in uh, 1967 68, right around 67 68 69 <laughs> Okay, so what was it like at that time in Germany for a Jewish woman who is also intellectual? Jewish woman who is who's a scholar, bringing her education into into Germany, which is a, which uh, I have some parallels from my cousin, but I'm interested to hear from you what it was like bringing your Jewishness into the scholarly uh, university and especially the high German universities of of Frankfurt. And in and so
1: Heidelberg, first thing in Heidelberg. Um, you know what I did there? I learned German, first of all. And uh, it was an international uh, institute for um, translators. And we were an international group of students and we all learned very intensively German. And I'm not, um, well, I learned it very quickly. And then I started uh, studying German literature and I was an exotic person at the time. There were so many Israelis who came over and um, I was popular. Uh, I had a friend from Egypt, a Coptic woman who was very interested in Israel and we liked each other and I was interested in Egypt and she, you know, we... We were friends because she suffered from the Muslim hatred as a Christian in in Egypt. And this was shortly after the Six-Day War. But uh, she didn't blame Israel for it. So um, it was uh, interesting. I met so many people who were interested in Israel. But on the other hand, it was the 1968 student revolt, you know, and The the leftists set sit-ins and teach-ins and so on. We had all these groups. And the Palestinians started their activity very aggressively against Israel. And they were aided by a Jewish student who was also extremely leftist then, who was their translator, so to speak, their German tongue. Of the Palestinian people, the people uh, um, liberation of Palestine, of this organization, and they were very aggressive against
0: Israel. In Germany, and in Germany, you're speaking.
1: In Germany, mm-hmm. and um, I, uh, we didn't have a uh, Israeli embassy here yet in Germany, only a, a consular general, and I. Ask them for material, information, material just to distribute it, or
0: who is the who is the them? I'm sorry, to interrupt. The the, the, the,
1: the, the, the diplomats.
0: Okay.
1: Really, diplomats should help me to counteract this propaganda by the Arabs. And they were sleeping, as you know, maybe asbara in Israel. Has been very slow and very. Uh, I don't know. They they weren't working properly, and I am a Zionist activist, and so I um, I was collecting material all the time, and we had no internet at that time, so I was collecting brochures and um, contacts with people, and and I was fighting. <laughs> the Palestinian revolt in Heidelberg (laughs) by our activities. And also my first action in Germany was together with my then not yet husband, but my fiance, there were elections in um, the area, in the uh, federal uh, land of Baden-Württemberg, where Heidelberg is. And they were everywhere, were posters of the neo Nazi party. And what did we do? It's not allowed, it's illegal. We tore down the the posters. And we were caught by the police and we were brought over to the uh, police station. And I hardly spoke. Um, This was maybe three weeks after I came. And my husband had to translate and I spoke in English. Why? I can't stand um, Nazi propaganda. These were the colors, you know, like the swastika flag, but with other logo. And uh, they, the, the policemen, didn't understand really what what the matter was, and um, but they had to do something. So they asked the police president, who was upstairs in his office, what to do, and he said, "Let them come." So we came there. There was a gentleman. And uh, I spoke English to him and my husband at uh, times translated. He was very interested. And um, then suddenly he he smiled so awkward, uh, unsympathetic. And I told him, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a very aggressive person in this case. I told him, I don't see any reason for laughing or smiling. And he said, no, no, I'm... Myself, I'm a victim of Nazi um, uh, during the war of the Nazis. I'm also a victim. It's all right. And he sent us out without any punishment, anything. We were just free. Okay. The Nazi party got 10% in the in the federal place in, in this uh, uh, country. Um in the parliament. It was a lot. So our our action of tearing down the the posters didn't really bring much. And um, okay, I had no problems at that time yet, not only with Arabs, not with the Nazis. And when we went four years later to Frankfurt, when my husband started his career, tenure track, we read in the newspaper, that the police president of Heidelberg was thrown out, was expelled from his office, because he lied about his activity in the Third life.
0: Well, this is a really great place to take a pause. We've just completed our second episode of a terrific series of episodes with Dr. Elvira Grossinger from Berlin, talking about her life, her parents' life, this is the Obligations of Memory podcast. I'm Jeffrey Geisner from the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. And we're going to continue our discussion in a few minutes. We'll be back to pick it up. Hold on, looking forward to seeing you again. Hi, this is Jeffrey Geisner for the Obligations of Memory podcast on the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and YouTube video. I'm with Dr. Elvira Grossinger and we're having a series of episodic discussions about her life. We're now really discussing her time in Berlin when she started to make a career and her husband is also making a career. They've just moved to the Heidelberg area and she just told an incredible story about what the state of life was in Germany at that time. We're talking about 1967 to 1970. Is that correct, Alphaira? 71, yes. Uh, 71. Heidelberg. Well, hmm? so You're now making a career in Heidelberg at the university, both of you. You're both scholars uh, in Jewish studies. Um, so I would ask you, um, what was it like at the leadership level of the University of Heidelberg? And the, the tenor of anti-Semitism, did you experience any at the university? Um, at the university, no, even in the German
1: literature studies, in the courses and um, n- no, on the contrary, it was a time when they discovered Jewish writers. Um I don't know if you know pa- Paul Celan. He's a poet from Chernovitz and he-, he was a survivor of the Shoah. And he wrote in German because um, Czernowicz was Austrian Empire before the war. His parents were murdered and he wrote some of the first poems um, on Shoah. And they were in the curriculum and they were, um, the students knew them. And so... um, It was very interesting for me to see the reaction of the Germans. Uh, At that time, they were still reading books and uh, learning poetry. It was a cultivated atmosphere. We had good professors. And one of them um, was, was teaching about German culture. Had a lecture for foreign students and I went there, he wrote a book, a very interesting book on German culture from, I don't know, from the Middle Ages until 20th century. And he was singing the Schumann songs uh, to the texts of Heinrich Heine, you know, mm-hmm. and it was great. And I wrote my diploma paper, my, my dissertation, on Heinrich Heine, the rabbi from Bacharach, which is an absolutely Jewish topic, one of the few um, by Heine. And I got an A from this professor. And I was very happy. And then, also much later, I discovered that when I already could um, make the research in on internet, that he was the rector of the University of Luttich in Belgium during the occupation. He was a Nazi appointed head of the university. So how did that make you feel? Um, well, I learned a lot from him. And I think still that my dissertation was excellent but i was irritated because he was so cultivated he knew so much he spoke languages and you know he was a fascinating person i never read about any atrocities he might have i don't know committed but the fact that he was in a nazi in Belgium, an occupant,
0: was a shock. So let me, uh, you know, when I visited on my trip in 1980, to many places I was, I, my, my cousin took me around to all the major areas, Frankfurt, Berlin, um, we went to Aachen, and the thing that I was noticing uh, more than anything else was the older people sitting on the bench. And I constantly couldn't get it out of my head to say, what were they doing during the war? So I'm going to ask you that same question. And yeah. now, obviously, that that demographic has passed on at this point, or they're certainly in their 90s, or they're no longer sitting on a bench. But, but you came in 1970, and yeah. it had to be, you know, wherever you went, there had to be a question as to a native German, what did you do? So how, exactly. did, how did you reconcile that being a Jew in Germany? But
1: absolutely. Uh, you know, I was brought up to be very polite, to get up when people, all the people enter a streetcar or a bus and make, you know, leave them the place. I never did it anymore, because I said, I will never stand up to an older person, an older German person and make him sit and me stand as a Jew. I don't know what he did during the war. It was in my head. So I know exactly what you mean. Um, I would never be able, still never be able to work in an uh, old people's homes, um, although they are much younger they were not nazis anymore people my age are born after the war and if they were 10 years younger older 85 they were children during the war so they are not perpetrators but i would i worked as a volunteer in a i was very engaged in jewish community in the social and cultural sectors and i was a visitor of old people there who had no family. So I I was sort of regular visitor, came every week, brought them flowers and went shopping for them and talked to them. And it was a Jewish nursing home,
0: never German. And so the question I have for you, my son who's 32, mm-hmm. he travels around the around the world, he's a partner at uh, a firm called um, Boston Consulting Group. He mm-hmm. loves going to Berlin. He says mm-hmm. when he ever goes to Europe, he has to go to Berlin, he loves the city. So yeah. what, what is he seeing? I, 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 I haven't gone back to Berlin since 1980. I have, still have much difficulty, as I just mentioned to you, even though time has mm-hmm. gone. But what is exciting about Berlin? Why are you loving Berlin? And why did you make it your home?
1: Well, I I didn't make it my home. My husband got a chair here, so we moved. We were in Sweden before he had chairs uh, elsewhere. But uh, Berlin, is uh, it became the capital of Germany shortly after we moved. And it is a city like Tel Aviv, you know? Lots of gays and lesbians, and it's uh, young people from all over the world come and there are 20,000 Israelis who left Israel and um, live in Berlin and uh, think it's much better. First of all, it used to be cheaper. It's not cheap anymore. It was cheaper than Israel. You know, Israel has very high costs of living, uh, but they feel like in Tel Aviv. You have lots of dogs, you're free, you only don't have uh, the seed. That's all, no sure, <laughs> but otherwise you have the, the discos and the clubs. I have a grandson who is now eighteen. He knows all the clubs in the city, and he thinks the city is absolutely cool for young people. I never been. I'm too old. I never been <laughs> to the to the clubs. I don't know what he's talking about, but uh, I suppose. There must be something about the atmosphere. All the people, you know, even my cousin, I have a cousin who's a second cousin in the United States. He was a doctor, um, um transplantation surgeon, and he has two children. And his um, children were never in Germany. And one day his wife... Who is daughter of Romanian Jews? Forced him to make a stop in Frankfurt on the Main when they were on the way to somewhere. I don't know. Frankfurt on the Main has the biggest airport in Germany, and so they stayed in the hotel. And they did. He refused to set his foot on German soil. He's a child survivor. And we came to the hotel to visit him. And um, later, the children of other cousins, they all came to Berlin. And his son um, is a gay and wanted to come to Berlin as well. And we had a mayor who was a gay man. And so, you know, I just told him, don't worry. It's an open city. He can come and he'll meet here all the Israelis, all the Americans, all the Jews. We have 200 Jews in Germany, 200,000, but um, as I say, 30,000 Jews in Berlin, among them over 20,000 Israelis. He will feel at home. And that's how it was.
0: You know, I have um, to learn my parents' story. I've watched many, many Holocaust films. And I'm afraid to even tell you, I've watched over 500 Holocaust films. And there's a film called Back to the Fatherland, which is all about young Israelis who are upset with the lack of a two-state solution, deciding to give up on Israel. And they're all coming to Berlin or to Germany. And it was a very interesting movie. You can watch it on, I don't know whether it's available in Berlin and on Amazon Prime, but it is a very interesting movie to watch how the young people, many of them, are migrating out of Israel. You're speaking right to that right to that cluster of demographics. And that's it. So I want to kind of segue. We're coming close to the end of our third episode. Tell me about um do you have you Do you feel you have inherited any traumas from your parents and if your children, who are all adults now, right? You're, you have one daughter who's a dermatologist, obviously followed followed your parents' medical footsteps. My father, but she didn't uh, know him. Okay All right, so would they how do you see yourself? Is there any trauma that is that you can identify from your parents in you? And can you identify how you transferred any of that trauma into your daughter?
1: Yeah, my daughter is a very healthy person psychologically, fortunately, but she always made a, a reproach. She reproached me for having been an overprotective mother, and that's right. I'm. I'm a typically Jewish mother and grandmother. I'm worrying about my children, my family, all the time. Never about myself. I don't care. I would like to live, and I hope I will live for much longer. But um, it's, um, it's just the, the, the fear that something might happen. I think it's a trauma which I got... From my parents, and which I gave on to her, but against which she is defending herself, she doesn't want to to follow the line, you know, mm-hmm. but she read as a child, she read enormous amount of- chi- children's holocaust literature, every book that there was on the market, and there were many so she what read.
0: Cost, what caused her since you didn't Your parents didn't speak, and I assume, tell me about, did you speak to your child about the Holocaust, and at what age did you felt appropriate to do that? Um, Well, when she
1: came to school, she was also um, in a group, when she was in high school, she was the youngest, she was 13 then, in a local history school uh, group from different um, grades and they, um, they um, made local history of the place where we lived near Frankfurt. There was a, There's a Jewish cemetery where my mother is buried and um, the school in which she was is uh, taking care of it. They digitalized the graves and they made research. There were nameless graves. Of deported Jews, or who, uh, or their, um, who committed suicide, um, in order not to be deported, it's a very, it's not a destroyed cemetery, and uh, the children, well, young pupils, students were taking care of it, and um, age, what age? From uh, thirteen to eighteen. Mm-hmm. and uh, one day this was on um, may 8 when i remember um there was an a, a, a trip to france um to um stutthof it's a camp concentration camps camp in Alsatia, near strasbourg and this, the class, as the group, this was a group of students from different ages. Me and another mother accompanied uh, the group of maybe 20 students who were in this course, an advanced history course, Jewish history and Holocaust history. And they, we went to France to the camp. And this was, um, you know, on the way, the teenager was singing, making jokes, and uh, we arrived there. It's up on the mountain, beautiful view, and it's a little Auschwitz with the crematoriums and uh, terrible. And um, they um, became very quiet and uh, shocked. And one of them, one of the students asked the teacher, who could do such a thing? Who did this? And the teacher said, the barbarians. And I said, no. It was grandfather and grandmother. And the teacher said, well, yes, you're right. And on the way back, it was absolutely still on the bus, four hours' drive. And the other mother, her son was seventeen at that age at the time, told me he cried the whole night through. And German uh, pupils and students, many of them, used to go to Auschwitz as a part of curriculum, of school curriculum. and it impressed them very much. I think it's um, necessary that they see what, what was done by their
0: ancestors. And you said that they used to go, was that a mis- misquote or that? They it's were not going
1: not anymore. And I, I know many of my age, more or less 70 years old, who as teenager, went to Auschwitz with their schools.
0: So I saw you know we have a scaling anti-semitism problem in the United States mm-hmm. and I saw that in Berlin they ha- you have a beautiful Holocaust um, uh, I don't know how how to describe it but there are those granite um, blocks that are somewhere yeah. okay but I saw that they it was um, violated with the swastika uh, this last week or so and so um, what is the state of you know what you're experiencing about anti-semitism the rise of the nazi party in berlin today and the government today
1: well uh, i'm politically active uh, i'm uh... i know you
0: i know you are and so i'm giving you the i'm giving you an open forum to be able to speak whatever you would like and tell the audience whatever you choose to say
1: well um i was the personal assistant to the then president of Jews in Germany, Ignaz Bubis, a legendary figure. He was a survivor uh, as well. And um, he was very authentic. He was a personality. Everybody adored him or hated him. And at that time, uh, the issue of the monument was raised. Uh, the monument what is
0: what is the name of the monument so I, the listeners know? Denkmal für die ermordeten Juden
1: Europas. And uh, the lady who initiated it, uh, I'm friendly with this, she's a friend of mine. Uh, it was, you know, it is the most expensive piece of, <laughs> of land in Berlin, it's right in the middle, very near to the Brandenburger Tor. the the Brandenburger Gate, and to the uh, government uh, place, to to the Reichstag, to to our parliament. So it is uh, practically um, a visiting um, card for entry to Berlin. Whoever as an official guest is coming to Berlin has to see it, and this was the debate then Why should it be erected? It's not, um, it's, you know, it's a very problematic place because the architect wanted it to be an open place, (coughs) excuse me, and uh, where young people can play and sit on it and eat and drink. While others said, if it's a monument of tragedy, it should be respected. So there was a big controversy, whether it should come or not. And at the end, Bubis, the president of the uh, of Jews, <coughs> <excuse> me, <coughs> said, I want this place to have, to have this place because people who don't have a grave, have it, so- are symbolically there. And every German, and every guest has to go by and see it. <coughs> so um, I think it's uh, important to have it. <coughs> I don't feel anything there. But uh, I, it's for other people. It's not for the Jews, I would say. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay, I know. So, um, my COVID, you know, my lungs don't make it. Um, We have a problem with raising antisemitism. We have 6 million Muslims here who are not all Jew friendly to say the least. We have the right party and we have the very leftists who are BDS supporters. And I am um, on the International Board of Scholars of Peace in the Middle East. It's, it's an international organization with 50,000 members who are pro-Israel and uh, for academic integrity. And um, we try to make people who are educating others understand and transform uh, Support the knowledge about the uh, Middle East conflict and uh, about the, the history of Israel and of Palestine and so on. And I always say, uh, don't say Palestinians, I say always Palestinian Arabs because they're also Palestinian Jews. So um, uh, for me, it is a matter of of life and death to be able to live here in security and not be attacked on the street because well unfortunately i don't wear my maglin david anymore i used to but it's too dangerous i don't want to be attacked for it people who wear kippah were beaten up and if you speak hebrew on the street You can be beaten up by Palestinians, not by the Nazis. The Nazis are different. And um, at some point, when my daughter was still in school 30 years ago, we were on a death list of neo-Nazis as Jews. And um, they tried to to burn down our house. It didn't, didn't happen. But they um, placed a burning device in front of our wooden door, and they were um, riding bicycles in front of our house, screaming, Jews, Raus, Juden, Raus, and um, Jews, get out. And this stopped. There was a group of neo Nazis in the neighboring city, and some of them had. um connections to my daughter's high school so they knew she is Jewish and they detected where we lived and I was connected with the General Council of Jews in Germany and I so we had a problem of this kind but my husband after they some of these people were identified and there was among them one co-pupil from my daughter's school my husband called the father and told him listen mm-hmm. your son is doing this do you know it no he was shocked and uh, it was a family of the of a leader of a neo-nazi group well known in germany and it seems that there was a some familiar conflict and it stopped but uh, you know being Uh, threatened by death, I was very worried about my daughter. Not about myself. I can defend myself. I've survived the Arabs. I could survive the Nazis too, I always said. But my daughter, she was on her way to school all alone. And then there were such types there. But thank God, nothing happened.
0: Is your daughter living in Germany as well?
1: She's living in Berlin, has her own uh, practice, yes. And she's... um, very well-known
0: dermatologist. And, and did she marry a Jewish man?
1: Yeah. He second, is a
0: of... Second gen?
1: Yeah. His uh, father was um, a survivor of Transnistria camps in Romania, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was very traumatized, the father, extremely.
0: So, let me, so let me ask you, Elvar, we're getting close to the end of our third episode, and I want to leave this um, our interview series with you, but I want to give you an open opportunity to speak about anything that you would like to for our audience. And I know that you're very uh, political, you are very uh, Zionist, you are uh, you have your heart on your sleeve, as we have seen in the last hour or so. So, please uh, take the audience uh, time here to express yourself however you would like. Well, um, I've always
1: been an optimist, you know, and I always thought, well, things will get better. But in Germany, not just in Germany, I see it on the campuses in the US and whatever happens there. In general, the anti Semitism is growing again. And in Germany, we even have. Anti Semitism commissioners in different institutions and a federal one. Uh, It's a new development.
0: What is is an anti Semitism commissioner?
1: Well, uh, it's a person who is politically active to prevent anti Semitism uh, in the society. He uh, the federal one, he um, made up a whole a whole amount of uh, places um, where people can report anti-Semitic incidents, for instance, and they're going to be um, they're, uh, noted and then uh, there's a police investigation in most cases. Because if you're just an individual, you no, know, not known and not very important and uh, attacked uh, anti-Semitically, the police didn't really care about it. But now they have to because it is a polit- it's a political institution. There are commissioners in the police. There are commissioners in the local um councils of places different places and they um they organize information um, events to inform teachers policemen and lawyers and uh, judges and whatever uh, about groups which are anti-Semitic in this society, about the dangers, about the consequences. And um, well, it's we work together, me from Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, and they um, on information at universities, the academia, because uh, people uh, As you know, students are militant, and uh, we have more and more Muslim students. We also have more and more Jews who support um, BDS. And we had, due to the uh, awareness, uh, which has come in now, um, a declaration by the German parliament that BDS, BDS is an anti-Semitic um, movement and that uh, cities, they are free in doing it, but they should not, uh, for instance, give public places for their activities, not in academies, not in schools, in thing, not in places which are financed by public money private places, you cannot do anything against it. It's free uh, free opinion. But if these places are financed by the state, uh, there should be no BDS activities because they are, according to the IRA, definition of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic. And In Germany, officially, there is no place for anti-Semitism anywhere. But um, it doesn't always work like that. And um, not every city uh, obeys. And uh, so the situation here is very unpleasant because we have more and more academics who... um, do what they want, and uh, they um, attack Israel, criticize Israel, invite Israel uh, enemies for talks, for conferences. So um, I'm pessimistic in the meantime. Maybe it's my age, (laughs) but I lost my optimism that things are going to be better. And this is an alarm sign for me that a country needs anti-Semitism commissioners to fight anti-Semitism in the society. It's uh, incredible for me.
0: Well, I want to leave it on that uh, note. And I want to let everyone know that you've been listening to Dr. Elvira Grossinger, who is a Jewish scholar living in Berlin, also lived in Israel for a period of time. You're listening to Jeffrey Geissner from the Obligation of Memory Podcast Network for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. I want to again thank you so much, Elvira, uh, for spending the time with us and giving us you your perspective, your history, your family's history, your parents' history. Um, and I think it's a, it's terrific what you're doing as far as being a champion for anti-Semitism in Germany. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for your work.